verses 26 to 29. And I don't know what page in the church Bible, but somewhere. Um, Okay, so while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for, the men, for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this first of the vine from now on, until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks so much for that, Sophie, who had very graciously um, taken that on last second, as I realized we didn't have a reader. Um, Why don't we pray as we begin? Father, thank you so much for this chance to meet together, to hear uh, about you as we seek to answer this question together, and to get this chance to share in fellowship around the Lord's table as we share in um, bread and wine together later. We pray that tonight you would be uh, drawing us closer to you and helping us um, to love you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our question tonight, why do Christians believe that someone else can pay for my sins? I wonder if this is a question you've ever asked before. After all, life tells us that we have responsibility for ourselves, doesn't it? From the moment we do our first exams, through to learning to drive or interviews for jobs, we quickly learn that other people can't take responsibility for us. And that's before we even get on to the law. If, heaven forbid, I were to ever commit a crime, I alone would be responsible for it. And I alone, if everything is just, would be punished for my responsibility in it. And, well, that seems right, doesn't it? And yet, and yet Christianity says that when it comes to the matter of my own sin, which is all the bad things that I do in my life, that go against God's perfect ways, the things that separate me from him, well, Christianity says it's possible for someone else, for Jesus, to pay the price. So what's going on then? What's going on? Well, there's three questions to ask and three questions to answer that might help us as we think this through. Why must it be done? How can it be done? And how is it fair? You see that substitution going on up there? Um, Struggled to find a a picture for you, so there's one. So let's start with that first question. Why must it be done? Why must it be done? Well, the Bible says that at the root of all the problems in the world is sin. At the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis 1 and 2, we see that God made everything good. And he made us in his image. Good. But in chapter 3, we see that because of sin, we live in a fallen world. And that we ourselves are fallen 
too. We live in a sinful world and we ourselves are sinful. The Bible tells us that and the world around us shows it, doesn't we? We only need to turn on the news to see that we are all now a mixture of good and bad. The example of Genesis 3 shows us that our sin separates us from God. And separation from God means separation from the one who made us and who made everything. The one who is the source of life. And so that separation, separating us from the source of life, well, it means that our sin is deadly. Death isn't the way things were meant to be, Genesis tells us. It's the result of our separation from the source of life. And this raises a question. I wonder if you've ever thought of this. Well, couldn't God just wave his hand, make it all go away, just forgive us like an indulgent grandfather? And the answer, the Bible says, is no. Because if he did that, he wouldn't be just. He wouldn't be fair. Rather than thinking of God as our indulgent grandfather, if he's upholding the whole universe, we need to think of him a bit like a judge in court. Imagine the headlines if a judge in court just started letting everyone off that came before them. That would be outrageous, wouldn't it? No matter what you've done, well, you're free. Don't worry, crack on. It would be outrageous. We would be outraged. And so why would we expect God to behave like that. And so, if we want to restore our life-giving relationship with God, well, then that thing that separates us from him needs to be dealt with. He can't just wave it away, not if he's fair, not if he's just. And so, that's a problem. How can we get over that? How can we restore our relationship Well, other religions, well, they say you need to deal with it yourself. Just as we have to sit our own exams, pass our own driving tests, get punished for our own crimes, and so on. And that seems to make sense, doesn't it? And so religions generally have lots of formulas to follow. Follow these rules to live a good life, and then you'll be right with God or the gods. Do this, don't do this, and so on. Does that make sense? Does that sound right to you? Why not chat to each other for a minute? Do you think that would deal with the problem? As long as we just follow these rules and live a good life, that'll deal with it. Why don't you chat to each other for a minute? Go. I hope you all agreed yes, because I'm about to give you a 10-point plan. No, only joking. Just checking if you're listening. No, um, rules can be helpful, can't they? There is a way that we are meant to live and should want to live. There is a genuinely good and perfect way, the way God made. And God shows his people what that looks like in the Old Testament. We see there the law. You can read it there. Jesus summarizes it for us in Mark chapter 12. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Simple. Uh, For Jesus... Those two things summarize the way we are called to live, the way we were made to live. The New Testament book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verse 15, and tells us that Jesus was able to live out 
those laws perfectly in his life. He faced all the temptations we face, but he was able to remain without sin. But the reality is, because of our sin, if we're honest with ourselves, we know we don't live like that. We break the rules again and again. The Bible describes it as though our hearts are wired towards sin. It's what we want to do. And every single time we sin, every time we go against God's good ways, well, we deepen more and more that divide between us and him. And even if we were able to snap our fingers and suddenly from this moment start to live absolutely perfectly, just like Jesus did, according to God's holy law, well, suddenly what we've done then is we've stopped making that gap between us and God any bigger, but it doesn't make up for the damage that's already been done. Because even when we do exactly the right thing, well, we're only doing what we should have been doing anyway, all along. And so we're stuck. There's no way to fix that gap between us and God. It's like we're trapped. We can't save ourselves. We need someone else to help us, to free us. And so then practically, how can it be done? If we're all responsible for our own sin, how can someone else come and take the responsibility for us? Get us out of the trap. Heal that divide in our relationship with God. After all, let's imagine for a minute, let's imagine the impossible. Let's imagine that one amongst us did somehow manage to get themselves out of the sin trap. Congratulations. Someone was able to be born and live completely, perfectly their whole life, which we know from common sense, frankly, and which the Bible tells us is impossible for us to do. Well, even if that person were amongst us, the problem is that person would only be doing what they were always supposed to do anyway. They would only, in that sense, be sorting themselves out. No one else. If we wanted to save others too, well, we'd need to be more than perfect. And William Sapphire made the good point that only in grammar can you be more than perfect. Not only would we need to be more than perfect, We'd need to be more than perfect billions of times over. And so how then can it be done? How can someone not only save themselves, their own relationship with God, but also restore other people's too, restore us? Well, the answer is they can't. No human being can. The reality is you'd need someone who wasn't just perfect, but who had infinite, inexhaustible value. Not just a life like me and you, 
but the source of life himself. We need God himself to save us. But there's another question, because we've already said, haven't we, that God can't just make it all go away. That would be unjust. Justice needs to be done for the relationship to be restored. And here's the answer. Jesus. Jesus is both God and man. As man, he lived that perfect life that we fail to live every day. Though he was tempted in the wilderness, he never gave in. He did what we could never do. But as we've said, that alone would not be enough. Jesus, as a perfect man, would not be enough. But as the perfect man who is God, the inexhaustible creator, well, then he can do what we never could. As a human who remained perfect, he can offer up himself as a perfect substitute for us. And as God, the inexhaustible creator of everything, he can pay the price not just for one of us, a one-to-one exchange, but for everyone who puts their trust in him. He can spring every one of us from our trap, restore every one of us to relationship with God, and bring every one of us into his inexhaustible life. So you see then how important it is to make sure we get our ideas about who Jesus is right. If we don't think that Jesus is really God, if we say he's just a great man, well then he can't really save us. He needs to be our inexhaustible creator to take the place not just of you or me, but of everyone who trusts in him. And well, if we don't think that Jesus is a man, if you think he's some sort of demigod or some sort of spirit, and people have in history, well then he can't really stand in for us. If he isn't fully human, then he cannot be a human to take our place. But then here's the rub. We're still left with the question, how is it just, how is it fair that he, the God-man, Jesus, can take the punishment for us, for our responsibility? If your neighbor burgled your house and someone else came running down the street and said, it's all right, I'll go to prison for them, you'd probably say, uh, well, no, actually, I want the person who's robbed me to go to prison, uh, randomer, thank you very much. And so why then, why can we say that we don't get punished? Why is that just? And that's where we need to get things the right way round. Because we need to remember what sin primarily is. Sin isn't primarily an offense uh, between people or against anything else in the creation. 
Sin is primarily an offense against God. He is the creator, the one who made everything perfectly, who we are made in the image of, and who above all, we are made to relate to. When we sin, when we mess that up, whatever that looks like, we are breaking God's creation. We're rebelling against God. And so God is the offended party. As long as justice is done, it is for him to forgive. God has that right. And it's helpful for us to think like that because it's helpful for us to remember that God could have just said, nope, look at the absolute state of things. Look at the state of you. You've pushed me away and you've wrecked my creation. Forget it. Let justice be done. And when we cry out for justice to be done in the world, that's our hearts recognizing God's right to do the same. But thankfully for us, he had a plan to make it possible for justice to be done and yet for grace and mercy to be given in his son, the God-man, Jesus Christ. He was our perfect and more than perfect substitutes. This was God's plan, the plan of our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to save us even though we don't deserve it. Because that's who God is. A God of justice, yes, but also a God of overflowing, abounding grace and love. It's John 3.16, isn't it? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's the good news, the gospel at the heart of the Christian faith. That despite ourselves, God loves us. That though we mess up and sin, he seeks to draw his people in through that perfect plan. That is what all the Bible's metaphors and language point to. Jesus takes the judgment. Jesus pays the ransom, purchasing us by his death, from death, from evil. Jesus paves the way and heals and restores our relationship with the Father. Jesus conquers death and brings us life. Jesus shows us the way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. It's like, it's like we were stuck at the bottom of a pit, that no matter how many times we tried to climb our way out of it, we just kept falling back in every time we messed up back to the bottom of the pit. But Jesus is the rescuer. He doesn't just chuck a rope in. He doesn't just shout encouragement down at us. He climbs down into the pit. He picks us up. He puts us on his shoulders and he takes us out. 
We could never do it ourselves. All the religious rules we followed could never get us out. But when we trust in Jesus, he himself carries us out and into life. What great news that is. It means that when we're trusting in him, we're not living in the pit anymore, but in the wide expanse of life with God forever. So we don't need to worry about whether we're saved or not, or whether God loves us. As we live for God, trying to follow his ways, we do so not in the pit, but in the wide open air, with Jesus guiding us, helping us, no longer needing to fear, but confidence that as our perfect Savior leads us towards him and to life, we will one day see him face to face, finally perfect as he is, as we were meant to be. That's why we share in communion together. We take the bread and wine to remind ourselves of just what Jesus did to pay for our sins, to be our substitute, and to strengthen us in our faith as we seek to live in response in our daily lives. This is what our substitute looks like. And as we eat and drink together, I pray that it would be for us a little taste of the victory that Jesus has won for all who've put their trust in him. Let's pray and then turn to communion together. Father, we thank you so much that when we needed you, you did not leave us. Though we were far off, you came to meet us in your Son. Dying and living, he restored us to life in you. Father, we thank you so much for this good news, the good news of the gospel. We're so sorry that time after time we fail and we mess up and we sin. And yet, help us to be so thankful to know that every time that happens, in Jesus, we have complete confidence. The gap is covered. We are restored to life. Lord, help us to have thankful hearts as we come to communion together now. In Jesus' name, amen.